Hi there, Dickens Olewe here. Thanks for checking in. This interview is part of a 10-part special series about how the media in Africa covers politics, governance, and elections. With my guest, we'll explore the challenges and ideas of how journalism can support, not undermine democracy. So look out for the other interviews on your podcast feed. Let me know what you think about the series. Okay, here's the pod. Enjoy. I look at these disinformation campaigns, I look at them close to every day. Mainstream media need to understand that they're a target, first and foremost, that their content is going to be weaponized many times because that's one target tactic they have. And number two, that they'll be a target for amplification. So my name is Odanga Madum. I'm the co-founder of Odipodev, a data consultancy here in Nairobi, Kenya, and also a fellow at the Mozilla Foundation, where I research the impact that the internet is having on African society. Uh, just recently, you wrote a story uh, which exposed the economy of misinformation and disinformation in Kenya. And uh, you had you were reporting basically said that uh, influencers are being paid between 10 to $15 a day to push hashtags. Uh, I'm curious about how you got interested in this story, and could you just share a little bit about how you went about uh, with the investigation? Okay, so when I joined Mozilla about a year ago, um, I was posted to actually what is called a host organization, which is basically a civil society organization that is supposed to sort of help you with your work. And in my initial interviews with that civil society organization, one of the things they told me, which I found to be very interesting, was that whenever they would go out to execute on their programs, they would often find that they had a lot of extra work to do, which was fighting the misinformation that had been peddled to the recipients of the programs before they could even go ahead and do the actual work. So we're seeing something, basically I was seeing something that mirrored a lot of the vaccine hesitancy that we're seeing, where on top of trying to give people the job itself, the logistical hurdles, you had this huge mental hurdle of actually executing the programs that they were doing itself. So at that point, I I took note of that problem and, and, you know, sort of kept it at the back of my mind as I continued through my fellowship. Um, And then, you know, one of the things that I think really astounded me about the Kenyan Twitter space is that every morning, every other day, you would find a whole bunch of hashtags um, that were not necessarily um, authentic. You know, they, they sort of had a very specific semantic that would, and they would occur at a very specific time every, every single morning. And one of the things that struck me was the rate at which their rhetoric was getting insightful and then the rate at which they were promoting the BBI and also the third one, which I think has been covered before, is you know the rate at which they were attacking the current deputy president, that is Ruto. You know, you talked about BBI and this is the Building Bridges Initiative, which was a proposal by uh, the president and uh, the leader of opposition to kind of change the constitution. And you're saying that you you, you noticed that there were hashtags that were pro the process but also slamming the deputy president who was essentially against uh, the constitutional amendment uh, move yes and actually now where it piqued my interest completely right 
is they were also attacking members of civil society, right? So because I was in a host organization, right? I was front and center at seeing the kind of attacks that people were going through, right? I could actually like talk to someone and they're like, yeah, we just had like a whole bunch of bots attack, use my content, right? To attack me. Um, and they would, or rather not use my content, but use my likeness to attract me, to attack, to attack me, right? And it was making it harder for a lot of these people within civil society to, to use Twitter to actually do the necessary civic education that they wanted to do. And so I was like, okay, I think I have the perfect recipe here to tell a story, right? And so that's when I began to actually now um, dig in to dig into, you know, what these hashtags entailed and the kind of reporting that had been done before about it. And that's when I also now called in my co-author um, uh, or rather significant contributor to, the, to my piece, um, Brian Obilo, to come in and let's, let's try and figure out what the hell is actually going on here, right? So what, um, what was different between the mm-hmm. previous uh, uh, reporting about, um, you know, misinformation uh, using social platforms and what you did? So on, on my end, one of the things that I had noticed is I had seen there some, some people had tried to do reporting around that for some time, right? But I felt like there was a piece of the one piece of the puzzle that was missing was we too many of them focused on the tech, right? Not so much on the society aspect of it, that these things were actually targeting actual people, right? They were targeting the judiciary. They were targeting people who, you know, civil society activists. They are targeting journalists, right? Um, and you know, where was Twitter's perspective in all this? There are very many things that we really wanted to bring to the table. And on top of that, of course, the fact that we actually managed to obtain, you know, verifiable sources um, that who could confirm, you know, and help us corroborate some of the you know or rather who could provide insider perspectives which we could corroborate using data from the time from the metadata of the tweets of the campaigns um as to the kind of activity that was going on um in these uh, in, in these campaigns something of which i have seen now um one of the big impacts of our reporting is that now we're seeing, you know, big tech platforms paying a lot more attention to what is now called offline coordination of inauthentic coordinated behavior. Wow. What, what, what does that mean? So basically, it is when a group of actors, right, decide to coordinate in a different platform as to how they're going to run a campaign on a specific platform. So one of the things that I did not expect to come out as a big outcome of the piece that we did is that the idea of WhatsApp as a command center for these kind of campaigns that we are talking about is actually a big deal, right? Because it then goes ahead to affect how they implement their their platform spam policies and how they decide to actually go ahead and take down their accounts. Facebook also just recently did an an announcement based on the same. 
um, around uh, what they are calling harmful real networks as well. There is definitely um, another element there that it seems is actually the, the, the social networks seem to actually be catching up to. You spoke to some of these influencers uh, who push uh, some of this uh, uh, misinformation and disinformation uh, online. Uh, what do they tell you? Why do they do it? So one of the things I think that, yeah, that came out very um, clearly to me was it's, it's about the money, right? Um, and this presents, even shows us the kind of challenge that comes when it comes to disinformation because there's demand for this service, right? And therefore, there's money to be paid. Like politicians are actually very willing to pay for this kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, it, it boils down to the, an answer as simple as it's about the money. And, you know, what, what I found to be interesting also was that these guys even have their own forms of success stories. They become role models to the point that other people uh, also want to kind of uh, join in. Yes, that's what it's become. That's what it's, it's a shadow industry where it's, it actually has its own success stories. Um, it, it has its own success stories and, you know, people based off of the back of these ideas of success have actually decided to join and, you know, try to manufacture all of this content as well. Your report was essentially about Kenya. Is is this just confined to Kenya? Is this uh, from just from your uh, from your research or is this also I'm obviously talking about Africa here. Uh, have you seen similar kind of uh, um, uh, groups coming together to kind of push misinformation on the platforms in in other African countries? So I think you know we were building off of the work that predecessors had done. I think I was greatly inspired by the work that Tessa Knight at um, DFR Lab had done prior earlier this year um, to do with the Ugandan bot, the Ugandan government's bot network, right? And so I was very much, I was very much looking at her work as I was doing my work. I, I think I, I borrow a lot of inspiration from that. Um, I also really borrowed a lot from the work that Craig Silverman and Rosemary Ajayi did in Nigeria um, to do with, again, um, bot networks that were doing similar work in Nigeria. And also when we released the research, um, when we released the research, one of the things we noticed was the number of people that came forward and were like, this is happening in my country too. How can you help us figure it? How can you help us uncover such networks? This is happening in my country too. How can we help? How can you help us figure out such networks? We had a number of people actually going up around saying that. Um, so it, it was very clear that this is not a problem that is unique to Kenya. And other people are actually trying to cover all of this kind of work. So yeah, this, this, it's not just me and it's not just unique to Kenya. It looks like there are certain features within these platforms, right? that create a demand for the kind of disinformation service that we investigated, right? And there are people who are very willing to fill in that demand. To me, when I was doing this research, I also felt this piece, I felt like it sounded a lot like the war on drugs in some ways, um, because the biggest problem, I, the biggest problem is that with the war on drugs is that you've got a huge demand problem that 
anyone is always willing to fail. Interesting. You know? And the other thing as well is uh, just listening to you there. I mean, this is not going away. Um, and the other thing as well, uh, especially uh, in Kenya, there are elections next year. And the demand, as you say, will just be greater as many politicians seek to influence public opinion. So my question to you, and I guess many people, uh, especially in uh, the so-called legacy media, will be curious about how do they go about using the platform and interpreting what is going on in the platforms so that they can best serve their audiences uh, in ways that they are not amplifying some of these uh, kind of these clever ways of undermining uh, you know, public uh, uh, information. So w- what kind of tips do you have uh, f- for media, not just in Kenya, but across the continent? And so there is actually a very clear way in which media and legacy media can actually become victims um, to these kind of disinformation networks because they're becoming much, much more clever from what I'm seeing. The kind of content manipulation they're doing is very much seeking to be as authentic as as it possibly can sound, as it possibly can look, and as it possibly can be. And the media are a target. The reason the media needs to pay attention is because the media is a target for the kind of amplification that it can give, not just Twitter's trending algorithm. Now, one of the things I'm beginning to learn is that anybody who has the power to amplify, whether it's Twitter or whether it's mainstream uh, legacy media or influencers, right? Now, the mainstream you know, influencers, guys with big followings, all those guys are targets, right? And so anybody who has a potential to amplify will be a target of disinformation, and they will be targeted in a sense of being try- of trying to be co-opted into the operation and deliver the information to millions of people. So that is what I would say um, legacy media need to be very careful about. So the, the, the other thing I just kind of wanted to hear from you is you said that, uh, you know, these social platforms are now aware and, I, you know, from the re- reaction from your the report that you did. And I'm just curious whether you know, because I know you have been in touch with uh, uh, some of them. I mean, is are they thinking about new strategies of, of dealing with this or how are they uh, going to help? Uh, you, you know, kind of, kind of, uh, you know, stop these networks from thriving. Um, number one, they're not putting in as much effort as they need to. Huh? They're grossly understaffed to deal with this kind of problem because you know you've got 54 African countries. I don't know. This year alone in Africa, you've got about what 22 elections, if I'm not wrong. Maybe someone can fact check me on there, me on that. But we've got quite a number of elections happening in just Africa alone. You've got the Afghanistan situation, which was incredibly crazy. And so talking to these guys, one of the senses I got was that they are grossly understaffed to deal with this problem. They can only deal with these problems sometimes one at a time. Afghanistan definitely showed us that um, because, you know, a lot of them had to put pauses on the kind of work that they were doing just to deal with the Taliban. Right. And remember, because these are American companies, 
America leaving Afghanistan has to be a top priority for them, not a bunch of bots um, promoting propaganda about a constitutional review process in an Eastern an African country. Um, that that is not a, that is. They were trying to say it in a very kind way, but I got the message that you know this is not really necessarily a priority for them, and so you know. Um, when I think about it from that perspective, we, this challenge is going to be around for a while. Um, and the kind of effort that is needed to deal with it, um, I'm just not sure if they're willing to invest in it. So, the, uh, you know, th- this series that I'm doing uh, is essentially exploring the role of the media uh, in, a, in a democracy. And I'm just wondering what your views are. Um, I mean, in, because if you think about misinformation uh, and disinformation, and the kind of harm they do to public trust. Um, um, you know, we now have a, a people, uh, you know, sharing uh, information that undermines public health regulations, a, a push to undermine public conversations. I mean, w- which way forward? Um, well, the immediate thing for me, I think, is that the the, the platforms need to stop being negligent. Yeah. Um in the conversations that I've had with some of these platforms, they've been very clear that perhaps the way that they are not willing to discontinue some features and um, that sort of has seen their algorithms republish disinformation to millions of Kenyans. And they are adamant that they need to invest more into those specific features to make them healthier. But I did, my question to them is why not invest now, right? And you, I mean, in this specific case, like I'll give an example, Twitter has put their verification program on hold sometimes for the kind of mess that it's caused. So if your trending algorithm is pub- publishing disinformation every day, why not just put the feature on hold until you figure out how to fix it, right? Um. But then I do wonder whether those words coming from an African instead of an American do matter to them. Um, but I think it's you know it's part of the it's it's part of the advocacy that we have to do to try and get these guys to sort of clean up their platforms. Um, the demand for disinformation will always be there, but we can definitely make it harder um, by not creating systems that allow for the amplification of this kind of information to millions of people. It just makes it too easy. I think, for example, a platform like Twitter just makes it too easy to do that. Um, The dynamics of how these things work on Facebook are incredibly different and a lot harder to investigate, Um, but they are there. I am very aware of the fact they are there and I will be turning my eyes to it. but the platforms need to stop being negligent about the function their features serve um, in this entire economy of disinformation of the disinformation industry. Because I think for me that's that's one of the lenses that I just really wanted to look at it from is this is an industry and who are the enablers? The platforms are right in the middle. They are the main enablers, right? It's not the guys, the guys you know, the people who are providing the service are just responding to demand, you know. 
Um, but there's a way they can make it a lot harder to, to carry out this kind of campaigns. Um, and they need to start doing that and at least enforcing that globally as well. Eh? Because um, too many times will they figure, try to listen to people only in the US, but not try and figure out what that, um, what that might look like um, outside of it. Could you talk specifically about the harms uh, misinformation could do to a democracy? The harm is very clear, right? Disinformation and misinformation campaigns, uh, number one, uh, have specific targets, right? Uh, People they target, and it ends up chilling good faith activism, right? Which is a very fundamental component of what a or what what we call a Kenyan what whatever it is we call this Kenyan democracy of ours, um, that's number one. Number two, disinformation campaigns make it very hard to carry out voter education during elections, which is very important, right? Um, and there are disinformation campaigns that are carried out with the specific purpose of poisoning the well and making sure that voter education is not carried out in an equitable and informative manner. So the harms are, the the two targets are very, very clear, right? Um, The two targets are very, very clear and they pose very serious threats. And of course, I think the third one is just the fact that if we are using disinformation campaigns as political campaign material, all the divisive politics and rhetoric that come along with it that we know has led us down a very dark path as a country. Um, Twitter and, you know, and Facebook and TikTok and the rest of all those other platforms become enablers of that kind of rhetoric when they do not pay attention to how politicians use their platforms. Are you concerned about next year's elections in Kenya? Growingly, yes. What do you think the media should do to best meet the challenge when i look at these disinformation campaigns i look at them close to every day mainstream media need to understand that they're a target first and foremost that their content is going to be weaponized many times because that's one target tactic they have and number two that they'll be a target for amplification and now they begin they need to begin to actually create plans right that take these two main points into uh, account this interview is part of a 10-part special series about how the media in Africa covers politics, governance, elections, and the impact this has on democracy on the continent. If you want to subscribe to my podcast, just search for the Dickens Olewe podcast on any of the main podcast apps. Let me know what you think about the series. Reach out to me on Twitter. My handle is at Dickens Olewe. Until next time, bye-bye.